If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Acts chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Before we begin, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need your help to not just understand your word by the power of your spirit, but for that truth to impact our hearts and our minds. We depend upon your spirit to grant us that understanding and to Help us to grasp these truths in a way that's going to impact how we live. Father, we depend upon you for all things. Help us now to focus on your word of truth. And may this truth impact us in a way that would bring you much glory. We pray that we would be quick to listen, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger in response to your holy word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I've titled this message, True Apostles of Christ. True Apostles of Christ. In the opening two chapters, Luke informed us on what the church is and what the church's place in God's plan is so that we would understand what the church is to do and why We must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shows what God does by his spirit through the faithful preaching of his word and the faithful proclamation of the gospel. He shows how the church grows and also how the church lives out its testimony, how we display that we're devoted to Christ. We testify of our devotion to Christ by publicly and visibly demonstrating to the world that we belong to the universal church by joining and committing ourselves to a local church. And this is what we see happening at the beginning of the early church. They hear the word of God and the gospel through Peter's preaching. They're pierced to the heart by the spirit of God through hearing the word of God. They're regenerated, they're born again, and they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They leave the perverse and crooked generation, and they join and are added to the local body of believers as they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see this new community of baptized believers and their new devotion to Christ after having been called out of the world to live for him. And this was clearly and visibly demonstrated through what they continually devoted themselves to and how that testified of their devotion to Christ and to one another and to making him known. Now we will continue to see the, the unhindered spread of the gospel through the faithful witness and testimony of the apostles and believers by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Have you ever received something unexpected? something you weren't even thinking about, 
something that was far greater than what you thought or initially anticipated when presented with something. These things usually come in the form of news or gifts. And if I remember correctly, it was February 2015, Valentine's Day, and Hannah handed me a little gift bag. I used to be a big Los Angeles Lakers fan growing up in L.A. and enjoying to play basketball. That was my favorite team. And so when I opened the gift bag to find a Lakers shirt, I was happy because that's what I wanted to have. But what I didn't notice right away was that there was another gift in the bag. I wasn't expecting anything else. So I reached in and pulled out a really small-sized Lakers shirt, and I was confused (laughs) because it was way too small for me, and it wasn't going to fit Hannah, and then it finally hit me. She was letting me know that she was pregnant, and we were going to have a baby. I was happy with the Lakers shirt, but overjoyed with this greater gift that was life-changing and of the Lord. The Lord provided us and entrusted us with this child. And in a far greater way, even though the gift of physical life is amazing, it's not out of the ordinary. It happens every day. It's estimated that around 385,000 babies are born daily in the world. But the gift of receiving unexplainable and unexpected healing from an unalterable physical condition is out of the ordinary because it's a supernatural miracle that only God can do and has done through his appointed Messiah and appointed apostles and has done during an appointed time. And this is what we will see in this passage. What this lame beggar was looking for was not what he expected. What he thought he was going to receive was not at all what he received. And this highlights that Peter and John and the other ten apostles of Christ are true apostles of Christ because of the power and authority that they're displaying through, that Christ was displaying through them. And this is an example of the wonders and signs that were taking place through the apostles mentioned in chapter 2, verse 43, that brought about a sense of awe and fear. And as we'll see in this passage, wonder and amazement. What happened to this lame beggar or crippled beggar was a miracle. It was a miracle. Miracles are a display of divine power. Miracles tell us something that has occurred that cannot be explained by the normal course of science. It's what C.S. Lewis has called an interference with nature by a supernatural power. What occurred was unexpected, immediate, complete healing. This is a miracle performed through the apostles, thus authenticating them as legit messengers of the Lord. And we know that the Bible warns repeatedly of the danger and threat and harm of false teaching and false doctrine and false apostles and prophets, those who claim to represent God yet misrepresent his truth and deceive. Jesus warned that many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, Matthew 24, verse 11. These false teachers are also called savage wolves in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. They're called rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers in Titus chapter 1, verse 10. He warned the Corinthians to beware of to beware of them, calling them false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11.13. And you can also read 2 Peter and Jude and almost any New Testament epistle and find a warning against false teaching and false teachers. So how do we distinguish between false apostles and true apostles? 
It will be demonstrated through their works, through their character, and through their teaching. That will display who they are serving and with whose power they are serving with. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And the author of Hebrews, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, says, After After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. The gift of healing was limited to the apostles and a few select number of their close associates. We can think of Paul and Barnabas. When the apostles all died off, so did the gift and purpose of healing. So does that mean that God no longer heals? Of course not. God may choose to heal today in response to the prayers of his children in accordance with his will. That is not the same as the miraculous supernatural healing ability given to the apostles, predominantly on behalf of unbelievers and ministering to them. And what we have in this passage is apostolic healing that points to a greater spiritual truth and reality. What is a biblical understanding of the apostolic ministry of healing or that of the apostles' ministry in general or overall? Because what this miracle sets up for is the preaching of the word of God through the apostle Peter. By what power and authority do they act and speak? By what power and authority do they act and speak? Why must their works and words be seen and heard and responded to? And furthermore, why is the church established and given the Great Commission? What authority and power do we have? It all has to do with Jesus Christ. So let's take a step back and see first where this passage fits in. We need to understand where we are in terms of the general structure of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So in chapters 1 through 7 in Acts, they're ministering in Jerusalem. In chapters 8 through 12, they're ministering in Judea and Samaria. 13 to the end, verse 20, chapter 28, they're moving out to Rome to the remotest part of the earth. Also, we, we take note that the first 12 chapters of Acts, we have the ministry primarily and predominantly of the apostle Peter to Jews. And the rest of the Acts from 13 on, we have the ministry of the apostle Paul primarily and predominantly to Gentiles. Also important to note is that what the section that we're in now, Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, it forms a chiasm, which we learned about in Esther and other parts. These are parallels that move from the outside in so that what is in the middle is the main focus. And so what we have in chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 22, is a healing, a speech or a sermon, and opposition that's received as a result of the gospel being spread. And on the other end of that is chapter 5, verse 12 to the end of chapter 5. We also have a healing, a speech or a sermon, and opposition. And so what's in the middle? Chapter 4, verse 23 to chapter 5, verse 11. That's the center. And what we see is that God is making it clear. He's making it evident that it's through the church that he is now doing his work. And therefore, How believers conduct themselves matters in relation to the spread of the gospel. He'll highlight obedience. He'll highlight praying. He'll highlight living a life of integrity. And that's how the gospel will go forth. 
faithfulness to live for him, and faithfulness to proclaim and make him known. When a ministry or church is focused on Christ, that is when it is most effective. We observe that with the ministry of the apostles and the reference to the name. The name. Chapter 2, verse 21 says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. And you look at chapter 3, verse 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. Down in chapter 3, verse 16, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Chapter 4, verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We can also look at verse 17 and 18 in chapter 4, verse 29 and 30, chapter 5, verse 28, chapter 5, verse 40, chapter 5, verse 41, all highlighting the power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ. It's not us. It's not us. But it's him that is doing these things and in whose name these apostles are doing these things. All that is being done is being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by his authority, by his power, in accordance with his will. It is his will that is being done. And so in these verses, Luke demonstrates through this miracle that these are true apostles of Jesus Christ so that the church would know the true source and authority of their power. Again, Luke demonstrates through this miracle that these are true apostles of Jesus Christ so that the church would know the true source and authority of their power. True apostles live and serve on behalf of Christ to do his will with power and authority from on high. The true church is to live and serve on behalf of Christ to do his will with power and authority from on high, from above. The church is an institution, an instrument of God, and the authority of hope in this world. But before we get to the direct implications for the church, this passage confirms that Peter and John and the other apostles represent God, as does the church. So first, in verses 1 through 3, we'll see that help is needed. Help is needed. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go in the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Clearly, this man is seeking help. He's looking for financial assistance, and even his daily routine depends upon the kindness of others to help him get to and from place to place. And we notice in verse 1 that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. in the afternoon. According to Jewish customs, there are three scheduled times of prayer. The morning hour, 9 a.m., at noon, 12 p.m., and the evening hour, 3 p.m. 
And so this was the evening hour of prayer. And what happens during the hour of prayer is that everyone goes up to the temple and gets together to pray. That tells us that this is not a private event, but a public one. We, we note that Peter and John are continuing also to observe this Jewish practice of going to the temple and participating in the hour of prayer. These hours of prayer would also include a burnt offering sacrifice. But here it doesn't indicate that they observe that daily custom, understanding that Christ was the once-for-all sacrifice. This shows that these early Jewish Christian believers did not immediately or fully disengage themselves from the temple and separate themselves from traditional practices of Judaism and use this hour of prayer and going to the temple as a way to testify of Christ before fellow Jews. Chapter 2, verse 46 says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. The temple area was an important context for their witness until they were excluded from it by increasing opposition to the gospel. And before we observe some details of what happened here, this sounds similar to what Luke has mentioned in his gospel account about Jesus healing a paralytic in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. It says there, One day he was teaching... Jesus, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus." Seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up. Pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. Jesus has the authority and power to heal and to save. And now notice what we see in Acts chapter 3, verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the temple, the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. Notice that this is a man. Again, pay attention to the details of the narrative that are given. This is a man, not a boy, not an infant. In fact, chapter 4, verse 22 says that the man was more than 40 years old. He had been lame or crippled or disabled in his feet and legs, meaning that he can't walk. And this was always his condition because it says that he had been lame, he had been lame from his mother's womb. He has never walked before, which is why he was being carried along to be set down every day at the gate of the temple. He couldn't get there on his own. Also, the fact that he was lame from his mother's womb rules out that his condition was a result of an injury. And his age and asking alms indicates that there was an inability for him to be healed naturally or through doctors. And this was clear to everyone around him, including himself. He went to the temple gate every day. Why? Seeking for someone to heal him? 
No, because he knew he couldn't be healed. Rather, he accepted that and would go to the temple gate, verse 2 says, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. He was looking to receive money and donations from people. Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And the imperfect tense of the verb translated was being carried along with the phrase set down every day indicates that this was his life. This was his routine. He did this day after day. This is what he always did. He would always ask people for money at the gate of the temple. And the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, has been said that it was so large and ornate and heavy that it took 20 men to just open and close it. And you could imagine how big this gate would be. This was the ideal location for this man to be at. And he was there at the ideal time as well, the hour of prayer when all would come to the temple to pray and for the burnt offering sacrifice. This is when the most amount of people would be trafficking the temple gate. He's out in public, and there's no way that he would not be seen and noticed day after day. Furthermore, giving alms was a responsibility that Judaism took seriously as an expression of compassion that God would honor. And so providing for the needs of such people was was almost expected. And so not only was this the ideal location and ideal time, but the ideal circumstance in terms of benefiting from their religion. He expected and knew that he would receive money sitting at the temple gate. It's clear from verse 2, it says, in order to receive alms. And from verse 3, he began asking to receive alms that this man, again, was not looking for healing. And he wasn't expecting healing or even thinking about being healed. He has accepted his condition. He has no idea what is about to happen. He is clueless. This is important because this shows that Peter and John and this lame beggar were not working together as though they were conspiring together to show that they can supposedly perform miracles or, or to get a following. This man was truly lame from his mother's womb. There was no cure. This was not an injury. And if you know anything about the faith healing movement, they would be guilty of this charge. In their healing conferences or meetings they are some, that are sometimes televised, there's a bunch of clips on YouTube you can find and watch if you want to. It's all planned. It's set up. People are working behind the scenes to make sure that the right person makes it up on stage. People will line up to supposedly get healed, There will be someone there to ask you questions, to screen you before you move on to the next person who asks you more questions and further screens you. And then you're either led to more people or more questions or you're turned away back to your seat. It's all a big deception and it distorts what true faith is. They're hoping to gain a crowd. They're hoping to be financially benefited from these fake miracles. In fact, there was a a reported case where one of these meetings someone got trampled as they were charging the stage trying to line up to get healed. And guess what they did? They called in an ambulance at this healing meeting proclaiming that they had the power to heal. They had to call in help. So what we see happening here is that help is needed by this lame beggar. This man is asking for what he believes he needs most, which is money. And there is no denying this man's condition. Help is needed And next we'll see that though help is needed, healing is not expected by this lame beggar. Verses 4 through 6, healing is not expected. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. 
and he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Verse 5 says he was expecting to receive something from them. What this man was expecting to receive was money, not healing. And why is this exchange between Peter and John with this lame man given? Why did they fix their gaze on him and tell him to look at them? And why did they wait for him to give them his attention? Why do they want him to pay close attention to them? Do they want him to remember them as those who he thought would give him money? No. They want him to look at them and pay close attention because of what Peter is about to say. Verse 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. He wants this lame man to know that he and John are true apostles, but ultimately to know who Jesus Christ is and his power and authority, not only to heal, but to save. Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And walk is a present active imperative verb. This indicates that this healing is not short-lived, but ongoing, complete, and comprehensive. He was going to be able to walk the rest of his life. Peter was able to heal because of the power and authority of Christ given to him. When he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, that means by his character, by his power, by his authority, by his will. This is the continuing power of Jesus through his apostles. Remember that the gospel according to Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. And Acts, the sequel or part two, is about what Jesus continued to do and teach through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. This is one of the things that marks a true apostle. He has been given the ability to do wonders and signs by the power of God to testify of Christ thus demonstrating that they are his messengers. What this is showing is that God's power at work in Jesus is now at power in the apostles. And so as they go out to proclaim Christ, their message is to be received as divine truth. And this healing displays the authority and power that has been given to the apostles. And today, Christians cannot simply command healing in the name of Jesus Christ. That would be to minimize and diminish Christ's character, authority, power and therefore be able to also place the efficacy of the healing upon man's faith or lack of faith that is deceptive and contrary to scripture the command and power to heal is never given to the believer or to the church it was for the apostles however we may confidently point the needy to the risen lord and pray confidently for them in his name knowing that he is gracious He's also powerful to heal if that is his will to do so. And if not, the believer can still trust in the Lord and look to him and to his word to have the proper perspective and understanding that they may be content and have peace and rejoice even in their weakness. By his grace, they can display Christ's power and continue to glorify him. What a blessing that is that in all circumstances, you can bless the Lord and put him on display. We can often fail to see the true depth of our need and thus fail to seek the proper solution. This layman thought his greatest need was money, but Christ offers so much more. 
Our deepest needs are not material or physical, but they are spiritual. We often ask the Lord to change our circumstances or to heal us rather than asking him for spiritual wisdom so that we can find joy in the midst of any trial or circumstance and praise him. God does not promise us ease and comfort in this life, but he does promise the power of his spirit and the truth of his word for peace and encouragement and hope that he will never leave or forsake us. God does not promise wealth, but he does promise contentment in Christ. God does not promise us good health, but he does promise everlasting life with him. God does not promise us the things of this world, but he does promise us immeasurable riches in Christ. God does not promise us a stress-free life, but he does promise us his grace and his love and his goodness. We see that help is needed and that healing is not expected by this lame man, but what he received was far greater than what he could have asked for. Verses 7 and 8, we'll see immediate healing is received. Peter commands this lame man in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene to walk. We see Peter's confidence in that name. He had an immediate expectation, and there was an immediate healing. We see this as it says, seizing by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Immediately this man was healed completely and comprehensively. He was not able to walk, and he had never walked before. Now he's able to walk. He was only able to sit, and now he can stand upright and not only walk, but leap. He didn't need to learn how to walk or stand or leap. He automatically was able to. His feet and ankles didn't need to be strengthened over time as if it was an injury. They were immediately strengthened. Also notice that it says that his feet and ankles were strengthened. This was done by divine power. And his healing was physically noticeable. A visible change had occurred. Leviticus 21 verse 18 states that people who had defects were prohibited from entering the temple. But we see in verse 8 that he entered the temple with Peter and John, walking and leaping and praising God. This shows that he had been completely healed. For the first time, he was deemed worthy to enter the house of worship. This theme will also repeat itself in Acts. Those who were rejected as unworthy for worship in the old religion of Israel found full acceptance in the name of Jesus Christ, whether this lame beggar or an Ethiopian eunuch, or a woman, or a Gentile. This is the beauty of our union with Christ as his body, the church. We are all one in Jesus Christ. This healed man also recognized God as the source of his healing, not Peter and John, as he was praising God for it. This layman did not only receive immediate physical healing, but also spiritual life. What he may have known and heard about Jesus before with what he has just experienced now by divine appointment resulted in faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And we'll look at this more in detail next week. But verse 16 says, And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Faith in his name means faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It has to do with all of who he is, his reputation, his character, his authority, his power. It's all tied to his name. And when the apostle Peter and John fixed their gaze on him and said, look at us, he wanted him to hear him say, in the name 
of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk, so that he would understand and recognize who the praise belongs to and to confirm them as true apostles of Christ. Also, this description of the healed man leaping has connections to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, where the same rare word for leap is used. It says there in Isaiah 35, verse 6, then the lame will leap like a deer. And there, the lame man leaping is a sign of salvation of God's people in relation to Israel's restoration in the context of the millennial age, which will ultimately lead to a new heaven and a new earth. So Luke's healing account suggests that the end-time restoration of all things is underway, that there is hope not only for the world, but for Israel. And Peter's audience right now is are the Jews, that Jesus the Nazarene is Lord, he is the Messiah in whom there is salvation. So Peter declares this in his sermon, we'll look at next time in verses 19 and 21, where he says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. God, by this miracle through the apostles, is seeking to confirm them as well as to attract attention and to point to spiritual truth. Just as Jesus' miracles confirmed his deity and his messiahship and attracted attention and pointed to divine truth. And what has just happened in the life of this lame man from his mother's womb is now in his, who's now in his 40s and has been seen at the temple gate day after day begging for alms is definitely attracting attention. And though all the people around may not have understood the spiritual truth and the power and authority of Christ connected to the healing miracle, by God's plan, it provides an opportunity for the proclamation of the word and the spread of the gospel through Peter. So in effect, this healing has given him new life, which is precisely what miracles represent, because they point to Christ in whom new life and in whom eternal life is found. And this leads to the last point, verses 9 and 10, undeniable praise and amazement undeniable praise and amazement it was undeniable that a miracle occurred and that this once lame man is now walking and praising god verse 9 says all the people saw him walking and praising god verse 10 says and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him they are certain that this was the layman who has been healed. It's a consensus. All the people there agree. And this miracle brought about wonder and amazement from those that were there. Not because they recognized and believed in the power of the name behind the healing, but because they didn't understand how that could happen and could only see it for what it was at the surface level. And so they were drawn. They were attracted to Peter and John instead. This would then provide the opportunity, again, that Peter took complete advantage of in preaching the sermon and calling them to repent and believe. We can't miss the point of this account. The point is not to focus on the miracle or on the layman or on Peter or John. The point is to see the continuing effectiveness of Jesus Christ as the source and power and authority through these apostles. Peter even says to those who were amazed at what had happened, that it was not by his own power or piety, but by God's power in verse 12. 
We also observe that this miracle healing was instantaneous and complete and comprehensive, that it occurred in a direct command in the name of Jesus Christ, given by and a true apostle, and that it was publicly acknowledged as indisputable. Even the Jewish leaders who would oppose the apostles could not deny that a miracle had taken place. In Acts chapter 4, verse 16, they said, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. And in Scripture, even Satan and his demons know the power and authority of Jesus. In in Mark chapter 1, verse 23 to 26, it says, There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him, throwing him into convulsions. The unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29 through 31, two demon-possessed men cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him. They acknowledged his power over them, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Mark chapter 5, verse 7, speaking about a man with an unclean spirit, it says, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each, with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Luke chapter 4, verse 41, Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. In Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 15, But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? So Mark chapter 1, the unclean spirit acknowledges Jesus as the Holy One of God. Mark 8, Matthew 8, the demons call Jesus the Son of God. Mark 5, they call him the Son of the Most High God. Luke 4, the demons know that Jesus is the Messiah. Acts 19, the evil spirit is well aware who Jesus is and the power of his name. No one rightly denies God. No one. People can only suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God has clearly made himself known, as we talked about, through natural revelation. His divine power in creation points to a divine creator. No one rightly denies God. There's no such thing as an atheist. You're only suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, which is why God has called the people to himself that they can go proclaim the gospel of repent and believe so that the righteousness of Christ could be imputed to them. How does this relate to the church today? How does this account of this healing of the lame beggar relate to the church today? Are there apostles today? No. They were used by God as part of the body of Christ to lay the foundation of the church, with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 9-2, verses 19 and 22. And that foundation was laid once and for all because they were eyewitnesses to Christ and had been with Christ 
After Christ ascended, they, were, they now wielded the power of Christ to act on his behalf. And after the foundation of the church is laid by Christ and by his apostles, the established church now carries with it the authority and power of Jesus Christ. That is why the church is the beacon of hope in this world. We are entrusted with and served with the authority of Christ that is to be displayed through the proclamation of his word and through the proclamation of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until we become convinced, until we become convinced of the power of Jesus mediated exclusively in and through his body, we will never effectively believe in the mission of the church. Do you believe that Jesus is powerful? That Jesus works through his church? The church is the global institution and instrument of God and authority of hope in this world. We need to understand our position and our purpose. That makes all of the difference. Our position or identity in Christ is who we are. If left to our own selves, we are by nature children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God, justly deserving the wages of sin, which is eternal death and condemnation. In other words, we didn't choose to become Christians. The Bible is clear that we have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, meaning set apart by him and for him. And because of his great love for us, he predestined us. He called us. He saved us. He united us to Christ, placed us into his body, the church. That is our position for the purpose of serving him and making him known with the power and authority of Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors of our Lord and our King, entrusted with the message of the gospel. We have been chosen, called, selected by God, not because of anything within us, but because of his love for us and displaying his mercy and grace. And he has given us the task of relaying his message, bearing his authority and his power because the kingdom of God is at hand and the return of Christ is imminent and his spirit is at work regenerating hearts through the faithful proclamation of the word and the gospel. We see in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And there is no other authority but the church during this time. First Peter 2, 9, we are chosen to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Church, we must understand the power and authority that we have because of Christ. We are the only hope this world has in hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called for this purpose. We have been saved for this purpose. When we do this, we glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We make him known. And this is connected to what we looked at last week, of our devotion to Christ. As we come together as his body, we demonstrate that we belong to the universal church by gathering together as his local church to sit under the teaching of his word, to partake of communion together, to fellowship, and to pray together. But that is to impact and influence those around us so that as we go out 
as we live lives of integrity, as we obey the word, as we pray, Christ is made known. The gospel goes forth. And people hear, and people are saved. This is the calling that God has for the church. He's given us the great commission to go and make disciples and call them to leave this perverse and crooked generation, to be saved from it, and to join the church of Jesus Christ, where they will find eternal rest and peace and encouragement and hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful to save, that it is powerful to sanctify. We thank you for demonstrating your divine power and authority through your son, Jesus Christ. As we see in the gospel, as his healing power points to the fact that you are the son of God and your healing power through the apostles commissioned by your son, Jesus Christ, also demonstrates that they are your sent messengers to do and perform these miracles to point to spiritual truth that Christ is Lord over all. He is Lord over life. He is Lord over death. And we all must call upon his name in order to be saved, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Help us to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that it is your power, your authority at work through us as we are faithful to proclaim the gospel of your Son and what he has done and what he will do as he comes back to judge. May many be spared from eternal death through our faithful proclamation according to your perfect will. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.